I think the way that we find out whether something works or not is we try it. We try it, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And if it does work, it does work. I don't think it's possible ahead of time to make a logical determination about whether something is going to work or not. I think that is the fallacy of mathematics. I don't actually know that much about your work. So tell me more. You've got a bunch of books, you've got a bunch of students, and you've got a brain scanner. How do you put all these things together? Yeah, so I'm kind of like a neuroscientist who went rogue and decided that he wanted to study the arts. The main thing that I have always thought is that the arts were a tool that humans made to try and in some way solve human problems. The number one problem that people often think about the arts solving is the problem of meaning or something like that. And they say, you know, what's the meaning in life and so on and so forth. And the arts solve that. The problem with that answer is that humans are actually not that interested in meaning. We're interested in meaning in the abstract, but then someone will give you the Pythagorean theorem or something. They'll give you meaning and you look at it and you'll be like, that's nice. And then you'll be like, you know, I would really like to have like a chocolate bar or more meaning or something else. Why would you want a chocolate bar? I just gave you meaning. And why'd you need more meaning? I just gave you meaning. I just gave you Pythagoras or Euclid. And the answer is, is that what the human brain really wants when it thinks it wants meaning is it wants the emotional sense that there's something more. And that emotional sense of something more is the core of spiritual experience. It's that sense that I can feel myself connected to something larger than myself. And in those moments, we experience what's known as a self-transcendent experience. Parts of our brain deactivate. We feel connected with the world. And it's awesome because it not only makes us happy for a long time after we have the experience, but it also makes us more generous and kinder and just all these kind of wonderful benefits. And so I started thinking to myself, well, clearly literature does that. It doesn't give you meaning in the way that people think it gives you meaning, but it gives you spiritual experience. So we should figure that out. And that led me to rebel against the way that literature has been taught for the last hundred years. The last hundred years, what you've been taught to do is interpret literature. You look at the words and you find what they mean. And then people say that that meaning matters. I actually say, actually, don't look at the words at all. Literature isn't about words. It has nothing to do with words. It's about things going on in your head. And we want to find the things in your head that are correlated with spiritual experience. A classic simple one is a metaphor. Metaphors usually make our brain go kind of, wow, that was cool. You get that from poetry. You also get that from rap music. I mean, anytime someone uses a cool metaphor, you're like, wow, that was cool. What's going on there? It's simple. It's the stretching or enlarging of a pattern. The most basic example of this is in ancient myths and legends where you have gods. What is a god? A god is a stretched human. It's a human made big. And by making the pattern bigger, your mind is like, wow. And those kinds of things, plot twists are another great example of a source of spiritual experience. Why? Because it's like all the evidence is in front of you. You know exactly where this story is going. And then it goes in the opposite direction. And then your brain is like, Oh my goodness, I can see everything. And yet there can still be more mind blown. So my research basically started with simple things like that in terms of how literature can create spiritual experience. But then I started working with veterans groups and I realized actually literature can help with trauma and not in a colloquial way, not in a new agey way, not in a way that like, if you drink green tea, you're going to get smarter way. Actually, neuroscientifically, literature can help with trauma. That made me realize, oh my goodness, what else can literature do? And so my career has basically been going through and uncovering these literary technologies, identifying, connecting them with effects that can be as simple as kind of like courage or love, or as complicated as literally making your dreams more likely to come true, which is a product of something known as counterfactual thinking, which literature can generate in your brain, you know? Pulling out those technologies and then running tests on them in small populations. 
to verify that they were. And so it's this kind of like weird mix of science and lit, which goes completely against the grain of the way literature is now taught, and which is why I'm actually not liked that much by other literature professors, but have like a huge cult following among like doctors and scientists. And that's basically me and my research. Wow. Your book, Wonderworks, there's just nothing in there that seems like it goes against the grain of, I guess when you say, yeah, we shouldn't be looking at the words, we should be looking at this other part of literature. That is different than most literary scholars. The number one attack against me, the New York Times said, well, this is a good book. There's something very suspicious about this book that we don't like very much. And the suspicion that everyone always has, if they're a literary critic, is that I'm an anti-intellectual. You know, the reason for that is that basically I value emotional experience. I value emotional wholeness and emotional well-being above ideas. So I would rather that a book helps you process grief than I would that it teaches you some theory that your English professor has <laughs> about how like politics works or how economics works or something like that. I would rather that your book makes you more creative or makes you a better scientist or gives you more courage or bravery or love or joy or what have you than I would that it teaches you some rule that some professor somewhere thinks is important. Because to me, ultimately life, you want your body to be as healthy and strong as you can get it. And everybody is different and is strong and healthy in a different way. But each of us has our own capacity for strength. And then on top of your body, you have your heart or your emotions. And you want to be emotionally resilient. You want to be able to love others and be able to process grief and have courage and bravery to do the things that are important in your life. And then on top of that, there's your imagination. And your imagination is your ability to be completely free to invent things that no one else has ever invented before, but also to be completely powerful because it allows you to solve problems and innovate and do these things. And so that's the kind of way that I think of a human being. And ideas are not unimportant, but they're not as important as any of those things. And so I do get an enormous amount of flack. And I also value creative thinking over critical thinking. You would not believe the number of enemies this has earned me because I say, do I really want my kid to go to school and become a more critical thinker? What is critical thinking? That's basically saying that won't work. Or do I want them to go and become a creative thinker, which is saying I've come up with a new solution to something. I think there's a linguistic problem there, because I think that critical thinking in the context of education has a different connotation than critical thinking, meaning thinking like a critic. The way I think of it, when I think of it in the context of a high school, is you're learning how to approach problems in a creative way, but also to apply logic and to see the obvious pitfalls in any argument and address them. That, I think, is very important. I think learning how to deconstruct someone's symphony that they wrote and tell them why it's not just like Schubert is really not that useful. I'm thinking I'm a little bit embittered by my critics as well. So I'm going to be even more bold and I'm maybe going to alienate everyone on your podcast. I think that even critical thinking, the way you've defined it, is of limited utility. I think the way that we find out whether something works or not is we try it. We try it, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And if it does work, it does work. I don't think it's possible ahead of time to make a logical determination about whether something is going to work or not. I think that is the fallacy of mathematics and of the Middle Ages, that you can somehow deduce ahead of time whether something's going to work. And I think of logic and creativity as existing in completely different spheres. Logic is generative of all sorts of things, mathematical and otherwise. But for creativity, there's no way to be critical about something before you actually put it into operation. You mean specifically in creativity? I think creativity is 99.9% .9 of what humans do. Logic is an incredibly technical, limited skill. It's basically defined by Aristotle in his organon and consists of a few basic processes, induction, deduction, syllogistic reasoning, dialectic, and interpretation. Those processes seem very powerful, 
And then you start to use them and you realize they're incredibly limited. <laughs> and then actually what most of life is, is it's making a jump and thinking this could work and then trying it. And then when it doesn't work, tweaking it. But there's not really induction or deduction or interpretation involved in there, except in a colloquial sense. In a technical, logical sense, none of those come into play in any of these creative activities. So you're going a step beyond Karl Popper here. Yeah, Popper's one of my heroes, but I mean, his book is not so much a logic of science to me as basically an unlogic of science. I mean, basically, when you read that book, you have completely deconstructed science, Popper. You know, this whole idea of falsification, which I agree with completely, you know what I mean? But Popper points out, I think correctly, that there's no logical way to establish that science is true. And then that always leaves people in this kind of short circuit. They're like, oh, I've got to figure this out. Well, no, it's not really a short circuit. It's simply just saying life is an ongoing experiment and experiments cannot be true or false. They can only work or not work. It's just a different epistemology. It just means something different. Penicillin is not true, I often say to my students. Is penicillin true? Is that true? No, it's not. It's a tool. It's a technology. And then people say, oh, but it's true that it worked. And I'll say, I don't even know what that means. How is it true that something worked? It worked in this case. We can predict that it's likely to work in these other cases, but that's not true. True is one plus one is two. That's true. Well, I mean, one and one in that example are approximations of the space between zero and two. That is exactly in the middle. So that's not even true. Okay, that's brilliant. I actually don't know enough about math to disagree with you. But if you want to take away everything and make it all creative, I'm with you on that. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to look at the world. And actually, it brings me to something that I've been thinking about with you, which is the epistemology of Western thought and Western pedagogy. Those are too many big words. The way we learn shit in the West <laughs> is by dissection. You're not taught music by like, all right, just go sit in that orchestra and look at those dots until you figure it out. You're taught music by like, let me take your favorite piece of music and we're going to murder it and we're going to take all the little pieces out of it and show you all the little bloody things that Schubert used to make this. And then if you can put that back together and make it alive again, you should probably be a musician. That's really the whole process of the conservatory. I think most people can get through a conservatory. It's if two years later, you still want to be a musician. That's really the test. That is so brilliant. And you and I completely agree on that. I mean, it's not dissection, it's vivisection. And that is the whole problem with education in this country is it destroys your desire to learn by taking the thing that you're learning about and making it dead. <laughs> well, it destroys your desire to experiment, I think. Yeah, yeah. Most smart people that I know taught themselves outside of class. I mean, they found a book, they loved it, and they kept reading that book. Even if they happened to encounter a book in class, they didn't learn from what they got in class. And that goes not just true for literature, that's for mathematics. I mean, I don't know that many mathematicians who actually learned algebra from the chalkboard. They went home, messed around with their book, messed around with problems, says messed around with stuff. And it just brings up this whole question, why are we teaching this way at all? Wouldn't it be much more effective for us to provide libraries of stuff for students to come in, to look at, to have teachers mentor them and react to each student where they are? And then people say, oh, well, that's very inefficient. Or like, how would you get teachers to do that? And I would say, it's not that inefficient. It's actually more efficient because you get more learning done. <laughs> the other way is actually the inefficient way. It seems efficient. It's like a giant machine that's always running and making no product at the end of it. I think what you're saying is absolutely brilliant. And I think it's true that so much of success in our world is basically holding onto your own heart in this incredibly depersonalized alienation space that has become public education. Wow. One of the things you said was about when you started studying neuroscience, the model was the brain is like a computer. 
one of the things that I've sort of tracked over the over the years reading just different stuff is that the models of the brain, according to philosophers and neuroscience, seem to be whatever the prevailing technology is. And so if you were to look up what they were saying about the brain in 1905, it was like a series of relays, like a telephone. And then before that, it's like farm equipment. And Gladwell talks about this in his book about how our education system is based on harvesting wheat. For example, there's no real reason why we should have a summer vacation, and it seems to be detrimental to people who can't afford to learn through their summer vacation. But if you don't leave your fields fallow, they don't produce enough. And so that was the idea of the 19th century, and probably Thomas Dewey and Horace Mann came up with this idea, and that's what we're still doing. It seems like our conception of what the mind is and how the mind works needs an update. Hopefully that's what you're doing. Yes, I think we always tend to interpret our mind in terms of the dominant technology at the time. I think it's a great way of thinking about it. You know, it's like the Middle Ages, the dominant technology was God, so our mind was God. Then the 19th century was farm equipment. That can get us some way. There are parts of the brain that do work like a computer. So I don't want to make it seem as if there are no computational parts of the brain. Your visual cortex is a computer. It exists to represent the world in the same way that any kind of symbol system was. So your visual cortex works like that, and there's good evidence that certain cells over our evolutionary history have kind of migrated from there into other parts of the neocortex. And that's what allows us to actually do basic math and things like that. So there are some computational components. But I mean, I think the main thing is that in our desire to make things knowable, we remove the actual mystery in them. The human brain is an enormous mystery. Just imagine like if every time you were like reading a Sherlock Holmes episode, you're like, oh, I know who did it. And then you just didn't bother to read the rest of it. I mean, like your mind would never grow. You'd be like, I'm the greatest detective of all time. I only have to read the first paragraph of a Sherlock Holmes story. And I solve it immediately. The thing about the human brain is it is successful because it is so complicated. Life is simple. The brain is complicated. In a way, it's the last real frontier. People will often say, oh, space, that's so interesting. I mean, it's like Elon Musk seems to have this obsession with jettisoning us to Mars. There's nothing on Mars, man. It's like a giant planet of dust. And this idea that there's somehow all this spectacular stuff out in the solar system, planets are not really that interesting compared to what's going on in the head of every individual right now. I mean, you can go talk to kids on the street and they will just blow your mind with what they say. There's some huge dynamic imaginative thing happening there. And so for me, it's just always been our greatest mystery is here. Computers are not that mysterious or that interesting or, frankly, that powerful. The fact that we worship them in this odd way is like trying to solve life too fast. And maybe we should take more time and look at some of the things the brain produces, i.e. art, all this amazing music, which we have no real explanation for. I know you have some explanations, but I don't. Painting, I mean, my mind is blown by Van Gogh. I mean, why did he think to put together those things? And that sense of the mystery and the wonder and the power and the possibility of the human brain that comes to us from art can then be turned around. And the great thing about the human brain, I think, is from a scientific perspective, every brain is different. The way the biology works is there's always a little bit of diversity in the system because that's what allows for evolutionary developments. And so there's this wobble. That's why you're not the same as your brothers and sisters. I mean, this is basically the beginning of the origin of species. Darwin's like, it's so weird that you have the same parents, but the kids are different. Why would that be the case? And then that was when he realized, well, you need to have that variety because that's where evolution comes from. So anyway, that's just a long and complicated way of saying that the brain not Star Trek, <laughs> is actually the final frontier. I would agree with you. And I've said on this podcast before that my religion is that I don't know stuff and I'm just comfortable with, there are things I just will never understand. And that's just what it is. I've noticed that the most knowledgeable people, you're in that category, Neil deGrasse Tyson is in that category, also seem to be the people possessed of the most wonder. 
And so there's this fallacy that if you learn more, things will be less confusing. And the reality is the more you learn, the more you realize it is immensely more complex than you could possibly understand. I have that feeling when I read Maya Angelou, she's my favorite writer just because she just transforms every 15 minutes, infinite capacity for wonder and joy and growth. And to your point about your religion being that you don't know anything, it's funny, I give a lot of talks and I give a big public talk this week and almost invariably at some point in the talk, someone will ask me a version of, do you believe in God or not? My answer to this question is always the same question, which is, first of all, I mean, from a scientific perspective, we just know that the human brain can't know. The human brain can't know. That doesn't mean that there isn't a God or that there is a God, but none of us can know for sure. And so it's possible that there isn't. And if there isn't, you know what? That's okay, because this life is more than enough. This life is more than enough, and I have gratitude for it. And if there is a God, I look forward to meeting her because she's someone I can't imagine. And I look forward to having my mind blown by something else. But this idea that somehow we would need to know and that that knowledge is the sign of something, I completely agree with you. I think that actually not knowing is the invitation of life. Knowing is death. <laughs> it's finished. Once you know something, it's over. It's done, right? I mean, that is death. Whereas not knowing is openness, is searching, is questing, is growing. And that's why, to me, I think if there were a God, she would be an agnostic because it's the only interesting way to live. <laughs> I completely agree with you. I do say that I'm an agnostic only because you can't prove a negative, but I can't say there is no God, but I can say I have yet to see evidence of one. I mean, I think the impulse to believe in God is the same as the impulse to want to have a strong leader. The world can be confusing, it can be scary, and you want someone to have the answers. You want to pick up a book called The 48 Laws of Power and have those things instruct you on how to live your life. But as you pointed out, life doesn't work that way. You can't just follow rules and expect a result. The problem with the 48 Laws of Power is not just that life doesn't work that way. I challenge anyone to actually try and remember 48 laws and use them. I mean, the human brain cannot re remember more than like one or two things at a time. I bet you even Robert Greene doesn't actually even remember half of the laws. So it just goes completely against the way that the human brain works. You could feed those into a computer and it would probably diligently churn through them. But as for us, no, we need basically the one law of fun. That would be basically where you could go with the human and they could actually do it. Yeah. I mean, let's take Jesus, the golden rule. If you're going to live by one thing, do unto others as you would have them do unto you is going to yield results that are positive in almost every case. My version of that is basically listen. If I could distill life down to one thing, it would be listen, listen to people, listen to the world, listen. The more you're listening, the more you're open, the more you're out of yourself, the more you're growing, the more you're uncertain. But I completely agree with you. If you know what someone wants... The problem with doing to others is you would have them doing to you. You know the problem with that is obvious that you then imagine them as yourself. And you're like, well, I would like lots of chocolate cake. So I'm going to give you some chocolate cake. Well, actually, I don't really like chocolate cake. Well, no, I would give it to me if I were you. So here, have some chocolate cake. To a certain extent, none of us actually really wants to live that life. I imagine that you want to actually tell me what you want. And, you know, it's fun to surprise you. I might try and listen to you and guess what you would want. And that would be even more satisfying. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to give you the watch that I want for my birthday. I think that that would probably not please you. We got to let you go. You got to get out of here. You have important talks to do and brains to scan. We're going to end by asking you to recommend two books to our audience. First of all, obviously, everything by Malcolm Gladwell would be my first recommendation. And then I'll recommend Maya Angelou because she is my favorite writer. So if you haven't read Maya Angelou, read I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. It's just extraordinary. And, you know, the great thing about both Gladwell and Angelou is you don't even need to understand the books. They will have these amazing effects on your brain just by getting into them. Gladwell will make you more creative. Angelou will encourage you to live a more interesting life.
All right. Well, Angus, thank you very much. Angus's book is Wonderworks. It'll be in the thing below the podcast. You should definitely buy it. And you can listen to the Judith Dupre episode if you want to hear me and Judith, who is also very, very smart and also absolutely loved your book talking about Wonderworks. But the best way to understand it is to buy Angus's book and read it. You will not be disappointed. I think it's pretty clear that he's very brilliant and he's also a wonderful writer and a great thinker. Book Society Podcast is hosted by me, Lucas Cantor, and edited by Santiago Ramones, produced by Lucas Cantor, but also kind of produced by Santiago Ramones. And Santiago Ramones has his own podcast, and it's called Bit Depth, and it's really cool. And you should listen to it. You can reach me through my website, lucascantormusic.com. You can send me an email. You can give me a call. New episodes every Friday. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. I didn't even get to ask you who your favorite sophist is. So let's just end with that. Oh, my favorite sophist is me. <laughs>